These are the dialogues of a peculiar character. My name is Thomas Gideon. Join me in chasing my peculiar passion for beer and brewing through conversations with the amazing and curious people who work in the beer industry. I look forward to sharing with you the fascinating stories about how and where beer is made and served, whether that is mere minutes or many hundreds of miles from my home. Welcome to episode one. In the first of what I hope will be many conversations, I sit down with Jim Beeman, co-founder of Seven Locks, right here in Montgomery County, Maryland. The original inspiration, if you listen to episode zero for this show, was this idea of me going out into the world to find stories like this about beer and the people involved with it. Seven Locks is really the reason why this show is starting so close to my home and will be spiraling outward from there to cover the state, the region, and then potentially live up to that aspiration of going far out into the world to find stories like this. To say my adopted home state is behind in terms of the growth of craft beers perhaps being generous, there are three craft breweries in Montgomery County. As a point of comparison, I just got home from a trip to Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio, the city itself, the state capital, has 50 breweries. That's a significant fraction of the overall breweries in the state of Maryland, let alone all over the rest of the state of Ohio. A theme you'll hear Jim and I touch on in this episode, and certainly one that's going to recur in these early seasons as I talk to the Maryland brewers first before spreading out into the district, into Virginia, around the rest of the mid-Atlantic, and hopefully soon the rest of the country and the world, is this struggle that we're seeing here in Maryland in terms of overhauling antiquated laws to support the growth of an industry that is a great job creator and holds a, a good standing in the communities where breweries, tap rooms, and brew pubs take root. I think this conversation with Jim demonstrates exactly what I'm talking about, and after you hear it, hopefully you'll agree. If you do, and you're in Maryland, or likewise someplace where the support of the drinker and an enthusiast can make a difference in terms of the growth of the industry, hopefully this is something that will motivate you to take some action, small or large, to help out in what I believe is a worthwhile cause. I long envied my beer enthusiast friends, especially out in places like Southern California, Colorado, and North Carolina, who had much easier access to me for years to many brew pubs and tasting rooms. I was thrilled when the first production-only full-scale brewery in my home county opened up a couple of years ago, almost two years ago now. It happens to also be 10 minutes from my house. Maryland, let alone Montgomery County, still has a long way to go, but places like Seven Locks are leading the way. I'm happy to be joined by Jim Beeman. Welcome, Jim. Thank you for having me. Jim, to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am in a partnership with uh, Keith on this brewery. Um, I think we've been working on this for the better part of three years. It's a, a constant, uh, constant effort. Um, seems like 
fairly consistently. There's always something new or a new challenge that pops up. Uh, the genesis of the project really came a, a few years ago when we were just sitting around talking about uh, different beer in different parts of the country. And uh, even just a few years ago, there, there wasn't any real type of beer scene around here. It, uh, we had a few, uh, Port City had actually just opened up when we first started talking about this and DC Brow had just opened up. I remember going to one of their uh, uh, outside events on uh, H Street, I think it was at the time. Um, so we're talking at this point like six, seven years this ago. This would have been 2011 or so, I think. Uh, maybe a little bit off on the date, but uh, age is striking me at this point, so no. Um, so we started talking about the lack of options, and, and, and you had alluded to that in the intro, that we didn't really have a production brewery here in the county. Uh, Denizens was still in a work in progress. Uh, I hadn't even opened up when we started the conversation, and I was delighted to see that uh, they were opening up in, in Silver Spring. And um, uh, really, it was about having some type of creative output. Uh, I was a longtime home brewer. Uh, cut my teeth, so to speak, in Montana. And much like you, I love the fact that you can go to a town in the Northwest and have several different brewing options. Every brewery kind of has their own style or take on beer. And we really wanted to bring that here to Montgomery County. Uh, saw it both as a viable opportunity from a business perspective, but also uh, an opportunity to uh, bring what we thought or perceived to be good beer. To the market. So that, that was really the driving force. We wanted to make good beer here in the county. Was the idea always a production brewery? So for folks who maybe are not familiar, not a brew pub, you have no kitchen, uh, really is sort of an industrial space and more of an industrial process. Was it always that or was there some period where you were trying to figure out options? No, it was always an industrial setting. Uh, that my, my One of my inspirations came from a small brewery in Montana. Well, not small anymore. They're actually uh, a pretty nice size of Kettle House Brewing in Missoula, where they had similar roots uh, that we have in, it was just a warehouse space and kind of hemmed together with a do-it-yourself attitude. I really love that aspect of it. And really, we get a lot of that, that commentary here, like, oh, it seems like you guys did this yourselves. Uh, and, and I like that. That is exactly what we wanted to convey that we've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into this thing. And uh, just with both having full-time jobs and, and making an effort to make this a viable business and, and do a lot of these projects on our own, it's important because then we can see the fruits of our labor and, and have that kind of uh, homey feel to it. It's interesting that you call out the homey feel because people may not immediately think of that when they think of an industrial brewery. It's very clear that you put a lot of effort, not just on the production side of the house, but also the front side, making this very welcoming, hosting events Thursday through Sunday every week, doing special events and one-offs. Can you talk a little bit more about that sort of attention to both halves of the brewery? Sure, sure. So as far as the tap room, we wanted to create a community gathering space. And, and I think you'll find that narrative to be pretty frequent with most breweries that are opening up. We are community centric. We want to have a place of gathering, uh, not only to just come in and drink beer, but to do positive things for the community. We just, over the last couple of weeks, we held a fundraiser for the hurricane victims and raised over $2,000 that we sent uh, across state lines to 
uh, Texas, and we also supported a local animal shelter, the Last Chance Animal Rescue, because they were taking in a lot of pets from those other areas. So that's just one aspect of that. We try to do a lot of different fundraising activities for various causes because we think we can have a positive impact on the community. Uh, the, the business ethos of the next generation of business leaders really has to do with not only uh, having the best return on capital that you can, but also having return on social capital and having a positive impact in the community at large. And it makes business sense too, because everyone is much more likely to support your business if they have a positive feeling about that and that you're you're doing good things for the community. So we try our best to keep that in mind and have a welcoming and inviting place for all. Uh, we don't like to target any particular segment of the population. Uh, beer nerds, for instance, uh, which is great that uh, we have a lot of folks that, that come in and that's not a pejorative connotation, uh, beer nerds wave that flag proudly, but uh, we get a pretty wide swath of folks that come in from all demographics. And it's really great to see, uh, we're constantly getting people in here that have been here for the first time. And that's a lot of fun when you get to talk to folks about beer, uh, educate them about what our philosophy is, which is a little bit different than other other folks in the area. Uh, it's just a lot of fun to be able to engage and, and talk beer. What do you think that difference of philosophy is? Well, I can't speak to the philosophy of others, but I would say that ours is really about consistency and improvement. Uh, certainly improvement is, is the goal. Uh, I think that we've made great strides since we've opened to improve our product, and we're continuing to do that. Uh, most folks don't necessarily realize iteration to iteration when we make subtle changes in the beer um, based on research and analysis and, and what we're hoping to achieve. but. I would say certainly if you compared what we had when we opened versus what we have now, it's a, a pretty big difference in, in terms of quality. And that's indicative of having a focus on quality as a core value of what we're doing here. Now, certainly every other brewery in the area is going to have that same notion. So that's not in and of itself unique. Uh, as far as our philosophy on the beer, we have 10 taps here. We, we try to make sure that we have a different beer on every tap. Uh, we also have our outbound distribution. Uh, we're self-distributed. That takes a, a lot of capital to maintain that machinery and, and making sure that we're able to satisfy customer needs outbound as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty big balancing act, but I think we have a very wide portfolio, uh, different things for everyone. Uh, if you like a, a lighter, uh, less malty beer, we, we certainly have that. If you like uh, various IPAs, we, we try to play around with uh, hop varieties and, and come up with something new every month or so and uh, try to keep it new and interesting. And, and that's really the challenge for every brewery is the new and the interesting with the availability of uh, platforms, the uh, social media aspect and beer collecting and all of the different things that go on in, in the beer world. How do you really captivate and, and gather the attention of uh, of consumers? And we're a, what we like to call a hyper local focused brewery. And that my point of view is, is where the market is headed and we do our best to saturate the local market and we're not even in Baltimore right now and uh, I think that uh, speaks to what we've been trying to do here and, and it's really take care of Montgomery County and as you alluded to we can't as the breweries that are in this county we cannot make enough 
beer to satisfy the demand just in Montgomery County. Uh, if, even with the, the, new, the new folks that are opening up, it's still going to be the same. We have over a million people in this county, plenty of establishments. There are over 1,200 licenses here in the county alone. That's a lot of beer. And so for us to be impactful in the local community, we're going to continue to focus on uh, the county as our, as our core business opportunity, and, and we'll continue to do that. I want to circle back to some of the threads that you laid out there in terms of that local story distribution and growth. Before I do, uh, you mentioned, I think, the obvious aspects of quality, focusing on the production side. And, and again, certainly homebrewers understand sort of that continual improvement in terms of batch after batch. It seems to me that that, that ethos informs the front side of the business, too, that this space that we're sitting in has evolved. You've rebranded. Uh, you've you brought more elements in. You've actually, as a bit of an audio nerd too, done some sound treatment on the space to make it not just visually welcoming, but actually sort of a, a livable space for people to come in. Mm-hmm. And we we did that. Uh, we, we waited to do that, not by design, but uh, we had to be able to pay for it. So uh, the the rebranding when we first opened up, and, and this is probably a little bit maniacal to open a business without a solid brand in mind or, or logo. Uh, so we wanted to open the brewery, figure out if we could make good beer, uh, and probably foolishly, the the logo and branding was maybe secondary to that. I know from a marketing standpoint. We, we probably should have had a, more of an emphasis on that, but at the end of the day, it, it didn't hurt us. Uh, I think it only helped us and it solidified our, our uh, notion that really the beer is in many ways speaking for itself. Uh, the, the brand elements, the logo, uh, that very, very important to, to, from a visual standpoint to be able to put that out there. But uh, I think that's they've kind of gone hand in hand, like you said, with the production side. We've made great strides. Uh, one of our beers won the the bronze at the uh, the Maryland Beer Festival here. We're very proud of that as third best in show. Uh, certainly very happy with uh, with that beer. And that very beer was actually the most recent iteration. We had gone through a few more where we've tweaked it and tweaked it and tweaked it. And uh, you know, it's it's a process. And so. As far as the improvements here in the tap room, absolutely, we want to make it more welcoming. Uh, we always seek to improve that, make it more comfortable for the folks that come in here, and we're going to continue to do that as well. Uh, incremental improvements, we're trying not to uh, go go too fast and too crazy. Uh, certainly, it is a business after all, so there's only so much money to go around. And as you can see, we, we just uh, increased our capacity with the new tanks. Those certainly don't come cheap, but... Uh, everything's a balance and there are a ton of competing interests for your money. I can tell you that much. <laughs> I like Brutus personally. You may say your original branding was perhaps a, a little secondary. What's interesting to me though is uh, regardless of sort of the, the visual rebranding, Seven Locks as a well-known place name here in Montgomery County and more place names on your tap list uh, behind the bar. It's almost to a certain point uh, maybe not as perceptible that you know the the visual elements change because there is such a strong identity in that that sort of uh, locational sense that all your naming brings to bear. What what informed that choice to have like so much sort of local history and local color uh, in the names of the beer as well as the brewery? Sure. So the Seven Locks that was a very deliberate decision in terms of the name. 
and that ties back into our thought of where the craft beer market is going, and that is the hyper-local sense. So in order for us to be successful and to hang our hat on the local narrative, uh, we thought it was important uh, as a part of our brand element to identify local areas. Uh, so every one of our beers that we append a name to typically will have a local association with it. And there's, in the beer world, there are four plus thousand breweries now with infinite number it's, of it's north of 5000 now yeah yeah so it's <laughs> and, and how many beers space, do yeah. do each of them make so how many names do you have to choose from and we know we didn't want to go with the uh, kind of the wacky name nomenclature uh, just wasn't something that we wanted to do we wanted to emphasize the local and we thought that that would be a successful thing and at the end of the day if the beer's good the name will get supported part of what i love about that as uh not a native-born Montgomery County resident, but uh, here for over 20 years and married to a native-born uh, woman from Rockville, uh, is I don't always recognize the names. And I'm delighted when I dig into them to realize that there, there's much more to the story. One thing that I am curious about, if it's okay to talk about it, if you want to talk about it, is uh, you have a beer, Owen's Ordinary. And a little while back, Neighborhood Restaurant Group opened a property, the first one in Maryland, not too far from here, also Owens Ordinary. I'm thinking back to three years ago before Denison's opened, that was not its first choice of name. And we might live in an alternate universe where they're actually called citizens, if not for the kinds of clashes that we read in headlines around uh, brewing new, beer and brewing news. You somehow seem to have navigated through that intact. Like it seems like, uh, I haven't sensed any kind of friction between neighborhood restaurant group over the naming of their property and your beer. Is that something you could talk about? Sure, sure. No, they had actually reached out after they had already selected the name and uh, essentially said, hey, is it okay? Are there going to be any issues with this? We noticed you had a, a beer with the same name and we didn't trademark it or, or anything like that. And, and even if we had, it still wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, there is a litigious element in this business we're not particularly inclined to be engaged in that i don't think it's productive uh, i think it's great that places like that are opening up here in rockville so if they had already committed tremendous resources to branding it and we just have a beer name uh, i don't think there's going to be any confusion uh, over the beer that we make which we don't even sell outbound it's just a tap room only beer versus what the uh, restaurant actually is it was similar to all the other names that we have. It's just a common element with here, within here in Montgomery County and uh, just didn't see any need to make a big deal out of it. So, you know, when we had the phone conversations, I said, there's just no issue. I don't think that uh, it would ever become one, so. I wish more of these sorts of situations work themselves out that way, to be perfectly honest. You said it, often these situations can be litigious. So in terms of that hyper-local focus and, and distribution, how much of what you're producing is outbound versus here in the tap room? And how does that kind of factor in how you think about uh, growth? Sure. So the expansion of the brewery here with the new tanks, as you know, we started uh, canning beer recently and that's been a tremendous success. So the volume has grown tremendously. The August figures I believe the Surrender Dorothy cans accounted for 20% of our volume. Uh, 
which is tremendous since we've only been canning it for a month and a half at that point. So that's where the growth is. Uh, I think pure volume wise in terms of kegs, obviously when we first started, we didn't have a lot of accounts. We weren't pressing it uh, as much. Now we have more of an emphasis on our outbound sales because we have the capacity. We're not constrained by the tanks that we have. Now we will be in another couple of months and um, anybody that's operated a brewery knows the consistent constraint of capacity. If you are doing well, you're a victim of your own success and it's constant reinvestment. And we'll be back at it again here in a few months. I'm confident of that, but um, our, our focus is always improving the taproom experience here. This is the best place by which everyone can experience what we have to offer. Uh, this is the only place where you're going to be able to get all of the different beers. And we are evolving our strategy here to increase the number of taproom only products, uh, the barrel aged products that we'll start rolling out again here in the November timeframe. Uh, those will be exclusive to the taproom typically. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're giving a unique experience here in the taproom but the outbound sales, it's almost like a separate side of the business. Uh, certainly a big focus as well, because if we have tanks that are sitting empty, it's not a, not a good use of capital. So we wanna make sure that we have uh, beer and tanks and kegs and doing a constant rotation and making sure that, uh, the, the, most, the most salient point is making sure that the retailers are happy with our product and that it's selling well, uh, because it is a win-win partnership. Beer is becoming more local. Uh, retailers are noticing this, we've had some uh, traditional retailers uh, that, or retailers rather, that have traditionally gone more mainstream type beer, been reaching out and saying, "Hey, I want to, I want to sell more of this craft beer stuff. We think it's a good idea." Uh, they recognize the quality aspect of it is there, because at the end of the day, that's the most important. It has to be high quality, and it has to be able to sell well in those retail establishments. And I think we've seen that so far. Um, you mentioned a greater demand for craft beer this county than the current breweries, perhaps even some of the planned breweries like True Respite, Parallel World, Astrolab, uh, that'll be coming in the next year, might be able to meet. I believe that. I see Seven Locks tap handles all around the county. Uh, even before you started canning, saw the, the fruits of your effort at self-distribution. Is self-distribution still going to be part of that, or do you see that there's going to have to be a shift as you scale up, as you manage that growth to being able to meet that demand uh, somewhat better? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's inevitable that we'll have to work with a distributor, um, both out of necessity in terms of space here in the brewery. The access to market outside of Montgomery County is uh, certainly going to be a very important part of finding a, a good distributor to work, work with. Uh, the other aspect is by law, we can only self-distribute the 3,000 barrels and we'll be bumping up against that pretty soon. So we can only distribute so much. Uh, we'll have to rely on a, a high quality distribution partner to do that. And, and we'll take our time and make sure that we have, uh, once again, a win-win situation for both parties. This, uh, definitely should be a positive for whomever we decide to go with as well as, as us as well. So. I want to circle back and focus on the beer for a bit. Uh, I certainly appreciate it as a brewer and a drinker. I remember one of the first times I visited, remember seeing on the beer menu itself a bit about your philosophy about making accessible beers in particular. I'm curious how in your mind you square that with the fact that you do have 10 taps, that you have so many styles on offer, each very distinctive. So 
the accessibility portion of that uh, that is still our core focus uh, we want john q public just the average person that wants to come in and try something new to feel like the beer is approachable it's not a triple IPA or some obscure thing across the board on our taps. Uh, it's important to have those types of things. And, and we're getting finally to the point where we can play around a little bit more. Uh, we couldn't experiment as much as we wanted prior to the expansion. We just did not have the space because we had to meet the demand of our outbound sales. We don't want to leave customers disappointed. So uh, we've started doing things that are a little more interesting in, in the brewery. Uh, we did a, a Grazer yesterday which should be a very interesting beer, uh, Polish style. I'm anxious to see how that one comes out. Um, our black IPA should be out here pretty soon uh, with more of a West Coast style uh, hop profile, a little more dank and resinous than what we've traditionally had, which is more citrusy and tropical notes that, that we've typically had in a lot of the beers. So we are playing around with a little bit more on the fringes or the extreme styles, and we want to continue that as well. Uh, like I said before, the barrel age program uh, is in its infancy. Uh, it's a lot of time and resources to, to commit to getting barrel age beers out. We want to start bottling them at some point, uh, but it's, as I said before, a lot of things competing for your money and your time. <laughs> so we, we have to do things um, in, in, in steps as opposed to just jumping into everything at once because I'm a firm believer in if you try to do everything you're not going to do anything particularly well so we're, we're taking it in manageable bits our concern isn't growth uh, we're not looking to say we are the ex largest brewery in Maryland or anything of that nature we want to be consistent in our approach and, and do this in a meaningful and measurable way that doesn't leave us either short of capital or product missteps where quality takes a hit because we are so concerned about getting beer out in a in a timely manner so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to more of the experimentation that we're going to be doing moving forward so you seem to show some patience in that though i think that that's compatible to what you were saying about just not growing for growth's sake but just kind of taking those considered sort of iterative approaches to it but i seem to recall the barrels being here almost from day one which says a lot too about uh, time investment on things like that, as opposed to some breweries that perhaps delay getting into barrel programs, knowing that they have to focus maybe more on core beers first. Can you talk about that decision to have the barrel program, even if you've only had limited releases so far and you're kind of staggering those out pretty much from the beginning? Sure. So the, the barrel program really was just something that I wanted to do. I love barrel aged beers. so found out that you can get all kinds of barrels from all over the world and it's a lot of fun to work backwards from okay I have this barrel what type of beer can I make uh, and, and to be able to kind of construct something around uh, the, the vessel that you're putting it in is kind of fun. Uh, the barrel program and as I said before it's still in its infancy it's allowing us to kind of toy around with it and, and figure out what works what doesn't work little things that we can do to improve the process. Uh, I think ultimately, if we were going to expand our barrel program, we would have to have another facility to accommodate that. And that's a whole other level <laughs> of uh, uh, investment and time. And uh, certainly something that we'd want to possibly do in the future. But I think we have to cut our teeth here, 
figure out how to do this very, very well prior to making that, that level of investment and really have to build our name in that. And there are several things that have to occur prior to doing that. So, You mentioned the, the new larger vessels and looking at, at your slab, it does seem pretty full. So it seems like you have a couple of, of reasons in the foreseeable future to undertake that expansion. Do you have thoughts about how you might do that? Is that something where this space that we're in offers you some flexibility to grow as say like DC Brow just over the district line was able to do starting in one bay, expanding to two, now four, or would you have to look for a new location? And if so, what kind of challenges do you foresee kind of transplanting something that feels very much a fabric of this space to a larger space that could accommodate that growth? So we have some expansion room in here still, uh, quite a bit actually. Uh, with the last expansion, we essentially tripled our production capacity. I estimate right now that we have an annual capacity of probably 2,500 to 3,000 barrels a year in here. Uh, by footprint and the measurements that we do have and the equipment that we have to be able to support, I think we could probably get reasonably to eight to 10,000 barrels a year in this space. Uh, very high ceilings certainly help. Uh, being able to move things around and, and uh, add the new tanks in the back once we get to that point. We have an entire back part of the facility that's not used right now that we can expand into and all of our glycol lines are meant to tee off and go in that direction as needed as well. So I don't anticipate that being a challenge for a couple more years because of our deliberate strategy of, of you know, slower growth and, and not not just making beer for the sake of making beer. Um, it's just not in the cards for us. But in that regard, you know, we do possibly have an opportunity uh, to, to move left or right here, depending on what our neighbors do and uh, what is available in the market. We could certainly do a, an unattached facility somewhere here in the neighborhood as well. Obviously, we want to keep it close to here for transportation purposes makes it a little bit easier, but uh, nothing's nothing's off the table so we have to be flexible and i think that uh, we've, we've been flexible with our business since day one we've had to we've had to ad adopt a bunch of different uh, ideas that maybe weren't in our business plan the business plan was great to take to the bank but pretty much you're going to set that thing aside and, and never touch it again and i don't know if that means we just didn't have a well-written business plan or uh, the, the realities of the market uh, had shifted and um, you know, we had to adapt. And, and I think that's been one of the keys to our success is not just sticking to something because we thought it was what was the right thing to do. It also seems like brewers in particular, uh, brewers who brewed at a passion at a home brewing level before starting a venture like this, perhaps are more open to just that it's a learning process, that the business plan might be sort of a best understanding at a particular moment in time. But in order to be successful, you have to be responsive, especially when you talk about uh, how you see yourself fitting into the community and serving the local community. That's all about listening and paying attention to that. The brew deck is definitely the beating heart of a brewery. Can you tell me a bit, we've talked about the expansion and, and some of the vessels. Can you kind of talk me through from the brew deck out what the setup is like here? Sure. So we operate on a 15-barrel, two-vessel system. Uh, we had looked at other combinations, three-vessel, possibly four-vessel, uh, but based on what infrastructure we had here, the floor space that was needed, we determined that the, the two-vessel 
was the optimum platform for this particular space. We can get a pretty good throughput on things with the two vessel. Um, in a perfect world, four would be great, but that's a lot of footprint in a uh, uh, in our space here. So we we decided that we'd rather dedicate that to tank tank space. And the original setup was the four 15 barrel fermenters, and we found that to be pretty flexible. You know, when we did the expansion, a lot of folks were asking, "Oh, so you're getting rid of those?" And, and no, we're not. Those allow us to have some creative flexibility. Um, you know, you, you're not going to do a pilot batch of 45 barrels or uh, a lot of times we'll even just do a, a seven and a half barrel pilot batch in, and kick that into the uh, smaller fermenters. And it gives us the flexibility to be creative and we'll start to kind of see that through a little bit more going into the fall now that we've got operationally with the canning, the scheduling and all of those items taken care of getting beer in, in and out of the smaller tanks is going to help us to kind of diversify, for lack of better words, and play around a little bit more. And that's really the most fun thing that we do is um, I, I love coming in on a Sunday morning and just hopping on the brew house and trying a new recipe. And you know, my brewer does everything during the week to, to make sure that we have a good product and, and puts a lot of effort into it. But as a, as a home brewer, I still like to find time on the weekends if at all possible, to come in early and just be in here to to crank out a new batch or try something new, and that's that's a lot of fun. I haven't heard of a, a two vessel system in a pro setup. Uh, how how does that work in terms of is that your mash, louder, and kettle are all one vessel with a hot liquor tank, or do you have a hot water source outside of that, and then it's a mash, louder ton and a brew kettle? So we do actually have a hot liquor tank standalone, and we have a mash louder and then a brew kettle whirlpool. Uh, so those are the, I guess, if you look at it from that standpoint, it's a three vessel uh, with uh, the hot liquor tank being back there. But uh, that's absolutely critical. Obviously, we aren't going to be able to get the volume of water on demand, uh, at least without an extraordinarily expensive on-demand water heater, which I don't think exists to that capacity. But uh, so, yeah, I guess from that standpoint, it is three vessel. Uh, but the mash lauder, uh, I would say ideally, you know, in a perfect world, I would like to separate the mash and the lauder. But like I said before, it, it was a space, space issue, and we, we wanted to make sure we conserved some footprint for uh, tanks and expansion. Because at the end of the day, it really, we, we lose a little bit of efficiency from that. But with the space constraints that we have, it didn't make a lot of sense to invest all of that extra money into a separate vessel when we may lose some efficiency throughout the years. It's we're never going to compare ourselves to a major industrial brewery. It's just no comparison. But that's not what people are coming here for. Uh, you know, so we need to stay true to our roots and <laughs> keep it keep it somewhat simple, um, but still having an eye on, on quality and, and still doing a lot of the things that we need to do from a quality perspective to make sure that the end product is on par with what the major breweries can put out. So what does your typical brewing schedule look like then? whether that's one-off, seasonal, or core beers? So right now it's an interesting question with the canning runs that we have that throws a wrench into the mix um, volume-wise. Before we were doing 15-barrel batches and now we're doing the 45-barrel batches to accommodate for the canning runs. So we have to stagger the brew schedule. We've since brought on another person to help out in the uh, with the cellaring and keg cleaning and 
all of the other tasks to free the brewer up to brew more beer, which is a good thing, um, but certainly does require more people. Um, we are getting more efficient. Um, but the, as far as the brew schedule, I would say that's there's nothing that's really typical. I think we're brewing probably minimally three days a week right now, typically four. Um, so we're moving through a fair amount of beer. Um, and that's when I say day, that could be a, a 45 barrel batch or that could be a 15 barrel batch. So some days are a little bit longer than, than others for, uh, for the, for the brewer, but it's yeah, you have to triple batch in the latter case. So Correct. effectively three batches back to back to back. Although I have to imagine there's some, uh, there's some efficiency to be gained there if you're if you're doing them right in a row versus across multiple days where you may be having to change out the grists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're only you're only doing a deep clean once on a uh, on a brew day. So if you had to do it for a 15 barrel or a 45 barrel, it, it does save some time, and there is some efficiency gain there. You're not setting up multiple times, so uh, certainly is a little more efficient that way. But it can be a pretty long day. Speaking of the larger vessel and brewing for those canning runs, are you, do you have a canning line here yet, or are you working with a, we have a mobile cannery? We have a mobile canner that comes in, and from a capital perspective, that's a, a big investment, but not only the, uh, the capital piece, but the human capital element of running a canning line. Uh, so the mobile canners do a very good job of setting up, taking down, and making sure the, the end product is of the, the best quality, and we didn't we don't still have that that human capital element to that, so uh, it's it would be a bit of a, a disservice for us not having the experience with canning to just outright buy a canning line uh, with the intent of taking it all on our own. And as I said before, that money is well spent in other areas as well. Um, we're, we're small and growing, and we realize that uh, there are uh, various various things that we need to focus on. And, and that wasn't one of them right now. Since we can hire experts to come in and do it, we'll certainly do that. Obviously, as we grow, just like every other brewery, you make that you make that leap at some point in time. Uh, but I think it's a little ways away for us. We've touched on a couple of times kind of the rest of the scene here in the county. How do you feel about the fact that uh, when you opened, or when you were thinking about opening, Denison's was still in planning? We've had uh, the actual first production brewery, a nanoscale brewery, uh, come and go in that interval. And now we have a handful of other breweries and planning that, that will be opening in the coming year, as well as the farm breweries much further up county. How do you see your place in that? What's the, the community like? What are your kind of hopes and worries for the future of craft beer in Montgomery County? Sure. I, I think that the opening of the, the new facilities is great for the county. I think it's great for the industry within Montgomery County as well. Uh, so I'm excited for all of these folks that are, are, are putting a lot of time and effort into investing in, in the local area. And I, I do believe that the, the rising tide does raise all ships. Uh, I know it's a bit cliche, but uh, no, nobody's going to confuse Montgomery County with San Diego anytime soon. But we're certainly not trying to be that. Uh, I think we can... As I said before, even with everyone that's opening, there is still a ton of room to grow, even just within the county. So I'm not sure what the aspirations of any of the other uh, places are, but like I said before, ours is we want to grow in Montgomery County. Uh, We don't even distribute into D.C. Uh, It was a capacity issue. We could not keep up with the demand locally, 
So we can't branch into new markets without really uh, taking care of our home market first. So in terms of concerns, I think that one of the biggest worries is at the state level with various pieces of legislation. Like HB 1238 from a few months back that would have interfered with contract brewing and places like this that in a lot of business plans, that's a critical element of early stage growth. Absolutely critical. And it's foolish for state lawmakers to look at this as a negative. Uh, you know, our operation has paid the state way more in taxes than we've made. Um, so for the state to consider this activity as any type of negative is, from a fiscal standpoint, just plain foolish because it's not only the taxes that we pay, but the folks that we employ. And really, it doesn't make sense to try to limit that growth uh, from an economic standpoint, from a social standpoint. You know, our jobs that we create here in the county pay well above the minimum wage we have for health care and other benefits to our employees. We open the business with the idea that we want to minimize turnover, which is bad for businesses, but also treat employees well. We feel like our employees really are the ones that are driving this business, and they are. And that makes a big difference to have the ability to be able to pay them a, a living wage as opposed to whatever is the minimum required. So I think that ethos permeates throughout most of the, the craft beer community here in Maryland. They're good, uh, good paying jobs. People like them. And most of the breweries have a very positive impact on the local community. And I, I think that it was in the recent BA magazine talking about, I think the craft breweries have given, in 2016 was the most recent year, over $75 million to charities across the country. And that's just reported data. Not everyone reports that uh, to the BA, uh, to the BA uh, survey. Um, so. There are a lot of good things that, that come out of this industry, and we're certainly just trying to do everything we can to be both good corporate citizens, so to speak, and uh, make a good product. I think there's something to exactly what you said about treating your people well. An experience that I've had as a consumer, certainly enjoying all the breweries that are open, and I hope extends to the ones that, that are opening soon, is that everybody just seems happy to see you, and they seem really happy and engaged in, in being involved in these local businesses in a way that I'm not sure I see quite to the same degree elsewhere. Growing industries are always more fun than stagnating industries. So I think that has a, a lot to do with it. The, the culture in the brewing industry is probably a little more, I would say, I don't want to say laid back because that has a connotation of you don't care about things like quality and service and, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, it's about engaging people, um, not necessarily about, it's not a bar scene. Um, it's about educating people about our products. It's a, more conversational, it's conversational. Exactly, exactly. So you do have that element of uh, interpersonal exchange that you don't typically have at most places. So I think that does kind of engender that happiness and, and, and lets people feel little bit more positive about uh, working at these places. Have you gotten involved with any of the efforts in the wake of 1238, like the reform on TAP task force, to try to bring your voice and your concerns more directly into these opportunities to perhaps 
make liquor laws in this state a little less uh, antiquated, <laughs> a little more forward-looking. So the Brewers Association, in conjunction with several members of breweries across the state, have been doing a very good That's job with that. The Brewers Association of, of Maryland. Maryland. Okay. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, they've done a very good job of spearheading efforts to educate a lot of the politicians as to the impact of businesses like ours. Uh, I haven't been uh, directly involved in many of those conversations, although we do talk with other brewers in the, in the county. I, I talk with Julie fairly frequently. Um, I don't have the time personally to attend, uh, just working full time. So I'm a nights and weekends kind of thing. <laughs> and then nights are sparse, but weekends are pretty much tied here. But um, having other folks that are passionate about it and uh, able to navigate those waters. And, and Julie's a, a great representative of here in Montgomery County of voicing the concerns of brewers at large, even across the state, of concerns and issues that may may face us. So I'm certainly glad that she's taking the charge. She's probably much more eloquent about explaining those things than I would ever be. So, uh, But there are a lot, of, a lot of good folks working very hard to change that narrative and to make sure that it's a level playing field. We're not looking for anything, <clears throat> pardon me, anything that would be advantageous to us versus anybody else in the state. We're just looking for open and fair laws that allow us to operate our businesses and grow. There certainly seems to be some common interest in local growth, local economy too, which perhaps makes it um, a bit easier for you to trust or rely on. People like Julie who do have the opportunity and the time and some experience too to kind of weigh in at the state house and, and uh, abdicate for right kinds of change, certainly. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to talk about, about Seven Locks, about the brewery? No, I think you hit most of the major points uh, very, very well thought out. Um, I, I'm very happy that uh, you, you're doing this to raise awareness of the brewing industry here in Maryland. Uh, I'm happy to have the opportunity to talk with you. Uh, I think what we are trying to do in, in terms of creating a, a long-term viable business is a good thing for residents, the county, the state as a whole. Uh, we want to continue what we're doing in terms of making a good quality product, continuing to refine our processes and, and making sure that we're doing everything that we can. So when you sit down at the bar and you pay that money for that beer, that you feel like this was a, a well invested in, in time and money to drink our product. So we're going to continue to improve and uh, hopefully we're, we're holding up to everyone's standards and uh, appreciate you taking the time to come out and talk with us. Certainly. Anything coming up in the, the near term or closer to the horizon uh, that you'd like to take a moment to let people know about? Reasons to, to come and visit? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we do our anniversary party the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, which is for the past two years, our opening anniversary, uh, which was our uh, year zero experience. And then last year have been very, very well received. We've have a ton of people in here. It's a really fun time. It's the day before Thanksgiving. So everyone's just kind of letting loose a little bit for the weekend. And what we're going to do is release our uh, Woodford Reserve barrel aged Imperial Stout that day as well. So that'll be a lot of fun. Anytime you do a new beer release, especially the barrel aged, it can be a lot of fun. So uh, we'll be bringing that out. Um, always new beers. I think we'll have probably before then another 
five beers that are new to the menu as we continue to cycle things out. We've probably brewed well over 60, 70 beers at this point in terms of different styles. Some small batches that never leave the tasting room, some that uh, we do end up distributing. But I would say that at any point in time, you'll have a good reason to come back. Uh, we, we like to keep it interesting and, and try to continue to evolve and uh, have, a, have a fun time here in the process. So, Fantastic. Thanks for joining me today, Jim. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. In the next dialogue of a peculiar character. But really, the, the transition from being a home brewer to a, a professional brewer, so to speak, was one where I had to keep myself uh, just fully open to, I don't know everything. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to feedback at peculiarcharacter.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please help spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Please consider supporting the show financially by visiting patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash peculiar character, and become a backer. Patrons enjoy special behind-the-scene access and bonus content. The support of my patrons is greatly appreciated. Until next time, chase what calls you. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. Theme music is Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.